Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 37th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So we have another special guest on the podcast today to talk about the markets with Matt and I. And joining us this week is Brad McMillan. Uh, Brad is the Chief Investment Officer and Managing Principal of Commonwealth Financial Network located in their Waltham, Massachusetts office. Uh, Brad received his bachelor's degree from Dartmouth, a master's degree from MIT, and a master's degree from Boston College. He's worked as a real estate developer, a consultant, a lender, an investment analyst, manager, and consultant, uh, and as a startup executive. So Brad has also written a book called Crash Test Investing that we will discuss later in uh, on this episode. And he's also regularly quoted in the financial media and a regular on Bloomberg and CNBC. So Brad, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. We're very, uh, very excited to have you on. So uh, just for listeners, do you want to just give a little more background on yourself and how you got started in the industry? Well, I have what might charitably be described as a checkered career behind me. I did start out as a real estate developer in the late 80s. I got out of college in 87. A lot of my friends went went to Wall Street. And of course, we all know what happened then, crash. I was smarter. I I got into commercial real estate and it took a couple more years before we actually saw a crash. So I ended up, I went back to grad school for the first time and then started several companies. But I got interested in the tech scene and I actually went out to Seattle to on a startup in 1999. We all know what happened there. Crash. (laughs) So after that, I got more interested in the stock market because I had made a lot of money and then lost a lot of money and decided I was going to be smarter this time around. I was going to actually join a great company, Commonwealth, and learn about the stock market. That's exactly what I did in November of 2006. Crash. So You're a great timer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think I know a little bit about uh, markets and how, how they end. So, But it's actually prepared me quite well for the job I do right now, which is worry about the investments and the savings for hundreds of thousands of people. Right, right. So I think that's a good just lead into the current envir- uh, market environment. So I know Matt and I have talked about this, obviously, the past two weeks. It's been a major topic, but I think it'd be nice for listeners to hear from someone else other than us to see if you have the same opinion or different opinion. So what, um, what is your take on what's going on right now? Well, first of all, there's no doubt there's a serious dislocation in the markets. You know, when, when we look at what has happened, when we see the drops we've had and are continuing to have, apparently... Clearly, there's something going on. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this kind of a crisis of confidence in the markets, or is this something more serious? What we've seen in the past is certainly we've seen quick drawdowns, we've seen substantial drawdowns, but in the absence of a recession, they typically have reversed themselves fairly quickly. 
What the data is telling us right now is that remains the most likely case. Certainly, we're seeing a substantial drawdown, but unless the economy turns south, we should expect to recover from this in reasonably short order, a year or less. What we need to watch now to see if it's morphing into something worse is the economy. And that's where I'm keeping an eye, particularly on consumer confidence and on hiring. Yeah, yeah, I think that kind of drives what we've been saying the past couple of weeks too. So um, it's encouraging to hear that. And um, a couple of weeks ago, Matt and I kind of discussed a piece from Morgan Housel. I don't know if you've ever read some of his stuff before. He talks about the emotional behaviors of investing. Um, and he made the point about the market is that risk is what you don't see and can't predict. And I feel like that this applies to this market environment right now. Um, and I think that's the reason why I feel like this sell-off has been overdone because typically, at least from my study of the markets, of what brings down markets and economies is something that not everybody is talking about. Do you agree with that? I certainly agree with that. The way we phrase it here at Commonwealth is the bus that you're looking at isn't the one that hits you. Right. So... You know, if you had asked at the end of last year, what's going to rattle markets? I don't think anybody would have said, you know, potential war with Iran and nobody would have said the coronavirus. That's what's hitting us. Right, right. Hey, Brad, it's Matt. So the big thing that's coming across my mind is with rates uh, dropping like a rock and most likely between now and next week, the Fed's probably going to go to zero on Fed funds rate. You know, when the dust settles, whether that's a week from now or say a month from now, because um, I think China's about three weeks ahead of us in the evolution of the virus. Money is not going to go back into bonds, per se, because rates, in my opinion, are so low. So that makes stocks kind of the game in town, and I think that would support more of a V-shaped type recovery, assuming this base case happens. And would you agree or disagree with that viewpoint? I would agree with that. What we're seeing right now is the majority of the S&P 500 stocks are now they have yields higher than that of the 10-year treasury. And we've already seen, as, I, as we've said, a substantial drawdown. So as an investor, if I were putting money in today, even as an income investor, stocks have a very compelling value proposition. And the more they go down, the more compelling that proposition go, becomes. So at this point, from a mathematical perspective, the stock market makes a lot of sense. It's going to come down to confidence. And that's what we need to wait and see. Right. Understand. Right. Um, so kind of keeping on the Fed having the emergency cut, um, do you think that this was the right or wrong decision for them to make an emergency cut at this point? At the time, I thought it was the wrong decision. I thought it was a sign of panic. And in fact, I think the Fed doing that certainly raised the question, well, what the heck did they know that I don't know? Yeah. And so that's, that's a concern. And I think that's, that rattled markets. And that may have weighed some of the groundwork for what we're seeing. At the same time, I think the fact that the Fed is very clearly committed to supporting asset markets is going to question the ultimate effect. It doesn't seem to be helping now. But when investors actually start stepping back and not panicking, I think that's going to be a very supportive factor. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of my kind of take on it too. I know that we talked about it, that I wasn't very sure if that was the right move because I think like you said, you know, the view of the Fed is that they have, you know, early access per se to the state of the economy and what's coming down the pipeline. Um, and I just didn't think that it boded well for optimism no, I'd agree, um, at that point because, right, because the thinking there is that that's going to stimulate 
you know, more spending and, and uh, money throughout the economy. And if, you know, everyone's pounding the table on this virus, no one's going to do that anyway. So it kind of, I guess it's going to be a wait and see if it was the right move. But I also feel like um, they don't have as many bullets left in the chamber per se in terms of rate cuts. So um, do you think eventually, you know, and I know this is all speculation at this point that um, rates are going to go negative here like we've seen around the world? I'd be surprised if they did. When you look at the evidence for negative rate policies around the world, the bottom line is they don't really work. So, you know, and I think the Fed's very aware of that. So I don't think there's an ideological, you know, wall against doing negative rates. I think it's a practical reason. It simply hasn't worked. And there are other practical reasons not to do it. It can break the financial system. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot more reliance on fiscal policy. And certainly that's something the administration has been shown to be open to in the past. I think that makes more sense. You know, I think you're going to see monetary and fiscal policy working together more closely. But beyond that, I think one point that's worth calling out here is you made the point that lower rates aren't going to help spending if people are just sitting at home. And I absolutely agree with that. But I think one of the underappreciated effects, which is going to show up over time with the lower rates, is going to be to start to supercharge the housing boom. We're already in a housing boom. We're already seeing housing starts at levels we haven't seen since, you know, the last housing boom. We're seeing housing affordability recover. And I think that the real stimulus there will be to help continue to push the housing industry back to its historical position. Now, that's not going to show up overnight, but people are going to want to have houses. We have demographics. You know, the millennials are starting to buy houses. And for anybody who's living in an apartment surrounded by other people, one thing the coronavirus says is, gee, wouldn't it be nice to have your own house? So I think there's a lot of things there. And housing is a tremendous um, generator of economic growth in the country. And I think that's one of the things that's really going to help to carry us through. Yeah. Yeah. So just touching on um, the other stimulus that you were just mentioning. So there's been talk thrown around of the payroll tax being zero for the rest of the year or pushing uh, the tax filing deadline back uh, past April 15th. Um, you know, are, are these viable or is this just kind of all bark and no bite at this point? It'll certainly be helpful at the margin. You know, if, if we have a demand driven shock, that's something that's going to help revive demand. So I'm not going to argue against them, but I would say it doesn't actually address the problem. First of all, you're assuming that by on a payroll tax cut, you're assuming that people can go to work. I mean, I would, I would put, your, put yourself in the position of somebody who works at a grocery store or a restaurant, and you wake up with a cough. Now, most, a lot of people, as we found from surveys, can't come up with $400 to pay bills. So if you do what you're supposed to do and self-isolate for a week or two weeks, that puts about an $800 to $1,000 hole in your finances. So if you don't go to work, you're going bankrupt. Right. And so what are you going to do? They go to work. You have kids to feed, you go to work. So we need something that lets people, if we want to control the virus optimally, we need a policy that lets people stay home when they need to stay home. And, you know, what we've done so far doesn't address that. Right. Yeah. And one thing that comes to mind with that too, um, is that for example, if, uh, you know, elementary, middle and high school, uh, start to close, then, you know, that's 
going to be taking away people per se, like in the healthcare industry, like nurses and doctors that are going to have to start staying home with their kids, right? So that's going to lessen the effect of, um, you know, people being able to work in healthcare and get this thing under control. Um, So I think that, um, you know, a lot of people have made quick decisions about this without thinking about uh, the consequences from a healthcare standpoint to try to control this thing. Great point. Yeah. And that I think is the real point. I mean, there's, there's multiple layers here, you know, anything we do is going to have side effects. Right. So what do we need to prioritize? Do we need to prioritize minimizing the economic damage or minimizing the spread of the disease? Yeah. Anything you want to add? No, Brad, I think you did an excellent job kind of laying it out and laying out, I think, the base case uh, kind of scenario. And I would agree monitoring the uh, consumer-oriented data is going to be key. Um, You know, jobs market, consumer spending, all this data, I think, is going to be analyzed uh, to a great degree over the next, let's say, one to two months, correct? Absolutely. I mean, let, let's be very clear here. I mean, one of the things I'm monitoring is the spread of the virus, and that seems to have ticked up, and that's not good. But this is something we can control, and this is something we will get through. What we're really looking at is what are the longer-term effects from an economic perspective. And right now, we have a tremendous amount of economic cushion. Job growth has been very strong, especially over the past couple of months. Consumer confidence remains very, very high. So that's 70% of the economy. Exactly. If that doesn't change, if the consumer keeps showing up, there'll be a disruption, but we'll be fine. But if that changes, if the consumer gets scared, that's when, you know, we might start to worry about longer term effects. Exactly. And I think the market does a good job discounting uh, and anticipating that things are going to get a lot worse. Hence, I think that's why the market is reacting the way it is with those unknowns out there. Correct. I would agree with that, but I would also say that so far, at least, the data doesn't support that everything is going south. The Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index, which just came out today, it ticked down a bit, but it's still okay. You know, we don't see the kind of collapse that the market seems to be predicting. We may, but we're not there yet. And that's you going back to your comment, Brad, about the dislocation, right, in the markets right now compared to the data that you're seeing. Exactly right. The markets, I mean, the stock markets are famous for predicting 10 out of the past five recessions. <laughs> and, you know, and again, I don't want to minimize the potential impact of the coronavirus, but what we're seeing right now in the data is a lot more mild than what the stock market is predicting. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was good. Um, so, Brad, really quick, just want to touch on on your book, Crash Test Investing. I know I read it and I thought it was great. Um, so do you want to just kind of talk about that for a little bit and you know why you wrote it and um, that sort of thing? Sure. And I'll just start with saying it's the best book I've ever written. <laughs> it's also the only book I've ever written. <laughs> but what it, where it really came from was in the aftermath of the financial crisis. I, I spoke with a lot of clients, with a lot of financial advisors, and you know the universal message was, we didn't know this could happen. We didn't know what to do. And that started my own thought process. Well, what should we do? What can we do? How can we ride out this kind of event? And what I really wanted to do was come up with something that pretty much matched a standard portfolio over time, but did it with less volatility. 
So what I said was, is there a way we can look at this where we never would have gone down more than about 10% at any given time? And the reason I picked 10% is because that's where gains and losses are symmetric. You may have heard if you lose 50%, you have to gain 100% to get back to where you were. And that's, called, and that's called volatility drag. So if you can keep your losses to 10%, then you only need about 11% to make that up. So that, that was the target. And I went back and forth and back and forth. And you really couldn't do this using a conventional measure, a conventional way of just staying in the market at all times. But you could do it if you did two things. First of all, if you included less stocks, more gold, and more fixed income than a lot of people do. And second of all, if you were actually willing to step out of the market when things look scary. And there's some very specific quantitative measures. Basically, it's a monthly look at the 200-day moving average. You can find that in the book. But what I was able to do was I was able to keep losses down to around that 10% range. It's a little bit more than that at certain points, 1987, for example. But even there, it did a remarkably good job. And you got returns over time that were remarkably close to your typical 60-40 portfolio. Now, that being the case, we're actually seeing this right now. If you were managing your portfolio according to the book, you would have gotten out of the market at the start of this month. And you would be sitting watching this from the sidelines as the stock market went down. doesn't always work like that. In fact, the flip side of being out of the market when things are bad, potentially, is a lot of the times when the market is going up, you're going to underperform. And we see that too. I mean, this has systematically underperformed the market for the past 10 years. But you make it up, ideally, when things are bad. So it's all about smoothing returns. It's not about maximizing returns. And thus far, it seems to be working in this case. Yeah, no, I think that was a great explanation. And the thing that I, you know, got out of it, there's two things really that that um, I took away from the book is, you know, um, relating to, you know, being financial advisors is that, you know, if you're underperforming in a raging bull market, like we've seen over the past decade, then people are going to give you some crap over that, right? But, you know, yes, indeed. It's, it's hard to get... Um, to get uh, people in the right mindset that, hey, you know, we're underperforming now, but if we have a crash, you know, this is the system that we have tested over the period of time that will get you out before mayhem starts, you know, looking back at history. Like you said, it won't always happen right around that 10% level, but I think just trying to get the point across that, um, you know, if you have a game plan ready to go, then it's almost on autopilot from there. And people don't have to worry about, uh, you know, for example, things like what we're going through right now. It's a question of time horizons. Most people have a time horizon, both forward and backward of about a year. They expect the next year to look pretty much like the past year. And so, I mean, for a while there, as the CIO of Commonwealth, I had advisors saying to me, what can you tell investors that I'm underperforming the market? You know, the S&P went up 20% last year and we're only up 12 and they're not happy. And, you know, my gut reaction is they should be ecstatic, but mm-hmm. they don't want to hear that per your point, Mark. So right. what, I did, what I did was I wrote a piece every year and I said, look, diversification means you're never going to be in the best stuff, but you're also never going to be most exposed to the worst stuff. 
you know, and I talked about how different asset classes, you know, but at the same time, part of diversification guarantees you are going to be exposed to the worst stuff. It guarantees you're not going to be maximally exposed to the best stuff. In other words, it guarantees you're going to underperform at some level against some reference. But it also guarantees you're going to outperform. And that's just a trade-off you have to make. Unless right. you can predict the markets, and I'm not that smart, you just have to accept we want a smoother ride and we're not going to get every last nickel that somebody with perfect foresight could get. Right. Good, yeah. way of, good way of articulating it, Brad. Yeah. And then the other point I took away that I really liked is, you know, investing for certain goals. And there is um, a piece that you uh, wrote in there about uh, an example about saving for college, right? And what return you need to achieve uh, over, you know, a 15 or 20 year time horizon to save for a kid's college expenses, right? And I think a lot of people, you know, again, when we're in a raging bull market, they think that they should be 100% in stocks where it's not necessarily the case. You have to invest for your own goals. And, you know, if you're someone who is going into retirement, you don't necessarily need to be making, you know, 15% per year or taking that amount of risk. I think it's an individual basis and what your goals are as an investor. Yeah, the metaphor I use is, and I think it's a good one, is driving. If you're driving to get somewhere, your, your goal is not to go as fast as you can whenever you can, unless you're 18, you know, because I got to admit, I was like that when I was 18. And <laughs> weren't we all? <laughs> but if you're a little more mature, and I hope I am now, I just want to get there. I don't really care about whether I'm passing the car next to me. I just want to get there. I don't want to have an accident. I don't want to run out of gas. I just want to get there. And a lot of people treat investing like a drag race. And that's not how I think we have to do it. And it ties back to time frame. My time frame is when I need the money. If I need the money to go send my kid to school this fall, I now have a problem if I'm all in equities. Right. I now have a problem if the market going down can derail that goal. I just want something that'll get me there. Right. That's, a best, that's an excellent way, Brad, to articulate it again. I, so for listeners out there, we are going to tag to our show notes a link um, to the book um, on Amazon uh, for Thank Brad. You. And then the other thing, listeners, we want you to know is uh, Brad has a really good blog called The Independent Market Observer. And we are going to link to the show notes um, access to Brad's blog as well. You want to say anything else more about that? Yeah. And then um, just, you know, on Twitter, uh, he's at, at Brad McMillan CFA, um, which we'll also link to in our show notes. Um, but Brad, where else can people uh, find you if they want to, you know, listen to you more, or, um, you know, uh, read more of your stuff other than those two areas? That's pretty much where I am. I mean, I do quite a bit of media. I'll be on um, CNBC tomorrow. I'm on Yahoo Finance today. And I believe I'm on Fox Business next week. So certainly the blog highlights when I'll be on the media. If you have a Commonwealth advisor, then I'm always available through your advisor. And I do respond to comments and questions on the blog. So if you want to take a look at that, thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. So well, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to get across or um, any last takes on, on what's going on right now? I think the real thing to take away from the recent volatility is, first of all, are you comfortable with it? Because, as I say, over the long term, 
I'm not concerned about this. If I am a young investor, if I'm a millennial investor, this is actually an opportunity. Stocks are on sale. If I'm an older investor and I really am concerned about this, I need to take a closer look at my portfolio. And in that, in that sense, I think this can be a terrific learning experience. You know, there's an old saying, never waste a crisis. I think there's a real chance for individual investors. We'll get through this. It's not fun, but we'll get through it. But you can take away some real value here. And I think that's what we should be doing. Yeah, it's a good way of saying it, Brad. I mean, one thing that I always articulate to clients is just because the indices are down X doesn't necessarily mean your portfolio is down X. That's, a, that's another great point, Matt, because if you have a properly diversified portfolio, this gets back to what I was just saying. You're not all in the S&P and you shouldn't mm -hmm. be. Exactly. All right. Exactly. exactly. I think that's right. where the fear comes in is that, you know, people turn on the news and, you know, they're getting their CNBC alerts and it freaks people out. And then, you know, they're like, hey, I need to get out of this market. I need to get out of this market. And, you know, we try to calmly articulate that, hey, have you taken a look at your account? Um, because you're not necessarily mimicking the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones right now. Um, so I think, you know, it's good for people to take a step back and look at their own situation instead of just paying attention to what's going on at, uh, you know, six o'clock news when you're sitting at dinner. Exactly right. Exactly. Well, Brad, we want to we want to thank you so much for your time today. We know you're an extremely busy individual. Uh, Mark and I look up to you. Uh, we value your opinion and advice and knowledge. So we want to thank you so much today. It's a great show. You guys do a great job. And thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking some time out of your uh, out of your day, Brad. We appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. And again, listeners, we will link uh, all of uh, Brad's contact information on our show notes, his Twitter handle, his blog, as well as his book. And we would highly encourage you to uh, subscribe to his blog on his site and check out his book. Yeah, absolutely. So, with that being said, we'll uh, we'll wrap up for this week, and we'll be back with you. Um, next week, I think we're going to do it a little early next week, maybe on Monday or Tuesday, we'll record the next episode and, um, we'll talk to you next week and we hope you all have a safe and uh, fun weekend. See you soon listeners. Thank you for listening to the independent advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. 
Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.